0: Hello and welcome to the Global Digital Futures podcast, where we discuss the latest in digital technology in the Global South. I'm your host, Chipoma Pondera. The researcher on this episode was Eliza Bacon, and the editor was Dervila Ni Vreinan. This week, we are joined by Paramita Vora to talk about her website, Agents of Ishq. Paramita is a filmmaker and writer whose work focuses on gender, feminism, urban life, love, desire and popular culture. It spans many forms including documentary, fiction, print, video and sound installation. She is the founder of Agents of Ishq, a multimedia online digital project about sex education and sexual culture in India which platforms discussions and materials around sex, love and desire. Hello Paramita, so lovely to have you.
1: Hello, thank you for having me here.
0: So um, we'll just jump right in. Could you start by telling us a bit about the Indian cultural context when it comes to discussions of sex and sexuality? And what are some of the gaps that Agents of Ishq
1: maybe wanted to fill or has filled? I think it's very difficult for us to speak about one Indian cultural context because, as you know, India is a diverse and complex country and it grapples with many histories, including the history of colonialism. But I would say if I were to try to encapsulate it somehow in very broad strokes, that like many other places in the world, India too has a patriarchal structure that we struggle with, which makes uh, any sexuality or gender identity that's not in the heteronormative framework precarious. There is a kind of... uh, different cultural history of India when it comes to sexuality and gender which is far more diverse I would say, Uh, but during colonization many of these things were marginalized, right? Many gender identities of trans people of different kinds of trans communities were marginalized, outlawed even Uh, many performing traditions that were erotic, courtesanal performing traditions were linked to prostitution and then outlawed so you also have things like homosexuality or sodomy being declared illegal by law. So there are these kinds of colonial overlay of morality that happens in the 19th century. But... I suppose it's a testimony to the success of colonization, that for a large number of Indians, then this begins to stand in for Indian culture, which, you know, it arguably is not. I think that what actually becomes quite complex in the present moment in India is that on the one hand, no matter what the history, but there is an atmosphere of taboo around most things sexual. The taboo is linked to the idea of people freely choosing whatever they want outside the heteronormative structure and also across caste, which is a matter of great anxiety in India. Alongside it, I think that there is actually, you know, because when people live life, they don't live it as a stereotype. People live their own lives in a very complex way. So on the ground, you obviously have people who are falling in love with all kinds of people who have diverse sexual desires. There's a, there's a great deal of sexual expression, which may not always be politically correct, but it exists. It's also present in like extremely raunchy folk songs. There was always a kind of a queer performative quality to older Bollywood films or many mainstream film cultures in India. So I think you have all this kind of popular culture in parallel that is both irrepressible and yet somehow shadowy because the orthodoxy now has become that, you know, this is not Indian culture, being gay is not Indian culture, or you are supposed to be monogamous and very, very strictly inside certain kinds of norms. So these things coexist in a way, even as you see a lot of legal changes and a lot of cultural changes taking place. All of these things are mixed and matched in a way. I would say that there's also an elite in India that very much takes on the old colonial attitudes without realizing they're doing it. And I think that's something you see everywhere in the world, right? That there is an idea of morality. This is often quite different from what is happening on the ground, I think. So there is a lot of conversation about sexuality that is often taken from Western sources rather than rooted in an Indian context. And there is sometimes a binary that operates, which is that, oh, you know, Indian culture is repressive and then liberals are somehow progressive, one always wonders how they became progressive, right? I mean, if, if all of Indian culture is repressive, The truth is, culture is always mixed and complex and always has elements of everything. And that's also true of India as much as anywhere else in the world. That said, we have had, of course, in the last few years, many different things we were dealing with, which led to the creation of Agents of Ish. Because although I've always worked on ideas of desire and sexuality, feminism in all my work, and I used to write a column about modern love, for some years in the newspaper. But I never really did a project that was so head-on about sexuality. But I think a few things changed. In 2012, there was a gang rape in Delhi which became extremely publicised. There was a lot of public outcry. But the public outcry and a kind of genuine... Ground level movement that swelled of young people and feminists, it very swiftly got co opted into a conversation where men were going to be the protectors of their women, right? And uh, which represented working class or, or other men, men on the street, men in public space, as, as the dangerous ones. And you can understand that this is a conversation densely coded with class and caste as similar conversations are coded with race in other countries, like which man is a threat and which man is a protector and of which women, right? So it becomes that there are certain kinds of middle class, upper caste women that need to be protected from some unnamed man on the street. This was kind of standing in for a conversation about sexuality. We also got a new government which banned, kind of banned sex education. in many. Not that we had a great sex education system or anything in place, but such as it was, also became banned in many states in India. And there was a kind of growth of the internet where these conversations, which are otherwise, which tend to happen in a more niche place, was starting to become mainstream. The internet itself was becoming, you know, social media was expanding. So there were diverse people on the internet. And at that moment, it seemed to me that the conversation about sex is always a conversation about violence. It's always a conversation about danger and risk. And it's also often a conversation which which re-inscribes ideas of caste and class and therefore also ideas of purity of women and queerness as something in a box rather than as an entire cultural and political approach to living your life differently or to thinking about politics differently and that because this was happening I felt like well I I I want to do something that's not like that I I don't I want to have a conversation about sex that is not simply sex positive but which is inclusive which is true to life and which is co-created and I think most of all allows us to make sense of our lives and to create a journey for ourselves which is not a templated journey Because a journey which is a template, it can be a liberal template, it can be a conservative template, but a template is a template into which you fit yourself, rather than an idea of freedom where you have the freedom to explore and understand who you are, and then perhaps create some kind of a sexual journey for yourself, which is somewhat true to who you are. I mean... There are no perfect lives and it's not a perfect world, but we try to make the best life that we can. So what can be the conversation that would actually facilitate such a life? And this is what led to the creation of Agents of wish in 2015.
0: That's really amazing. And I mean, you've touched on so many things, including like just the history and culture and politics that impacts or even is reflected in sexuality and gender. And really interesting about how all of this also converged as well as like the internet converged into and formed different platforms such as Agents of Ish for example and it's quite interesting like when we look at the aesthetic of Agents of Ish I like how you were talking about a non-templated expression right something that's quite messy and unpredictable and the aesthetic itself even looks kind of like handmade like a scrapbook in a sense could you tell us more about this decision and also about, you know, the
1: types of content that then can emerge from that? Agents, Space started also very sort of unexpectedly fast. Like I had the idea and I applied for some funding and I never ever thought that we would get it and we got it all of a sudden, like almost overnight. So it was very exciting, but in a sense, we also hit the ground running to some extent and began to shape the project. But one thing that really guided the project was that we wanted it to be Something for Indians. So that means rooted in an Indian cultural context and also creating a language to talk about sex in an Indian way, right? Because for example, I think like some of the things about the internet, you know, I'm what you'd call a pakka 90s girl. Uh, I was young in the 90s and what's even more awesome or dastardly, depending on how you look at it, was that I was, I spent my 20s in New York City. So in a sense, there, there's a kind of receptivity to certain types of Certain types of pop things in feminism, that a lot ha- a lot of which happened in the 90s, uh, which I simply love and which, you know, spoke to my own love of popular culture in India. And I think that in the 1990s, you are seeing, you know, for the first time, people talking about se- sexuality and feminism in slightly different ways than has gone before. And uh, there's a lot of discussion, not only about sex, but about pleasure itself. And uh, I think in the 21st century, what changes is that the conversation about gender identities and multiple kind of queernesses starts to also interact with all of this and create a very different kind of world of sexuality than existed before, right? So I think that in a way, to create an Indian language to talk about all these things, it's very important that we not simply create Indian equivalents for things that people are hearing from other spaces, right? I mean, today it's very hard to say what the internet makes us crisscross more than ever before. Our references, our reference points, and our points of resonance. But at the same time, if one wants to, I think, create any kind of project that is inclusive and perpetually growing, perpetually able to evolve, it's quite important to root it in the ground that you're working in. And um, I think like on the internet at that point, there were a few... Feministish, as I call them because they're kind of feminist but you know like that online feminism has a certain grid that it functions within as well and then I would be like uh, see these quizzes about you know my vajayjay and my coochie and I'd feel like oh, Indians are really using those words I mean maybe a very tiny group of Indians who are you know global citizen types but I, I it just feels very alienating even for somebody like me who has worked in other countries and you know is fairly exposed to western culture but i just don't find to find it funny and a little bit of like a poser kind of
0: culture let's take a short break <music> You are listening to the Global Digital Futures Podcast with Chipo Mapondera, where we discuss the latest in digital media and technology in the global south. Okay, let's get back to the
1: conversation. And I think... You know, another interesting thing happened in 2015, which is that Tinder came to India in that year, actually. So dating app culture also starts to open up and this hookup culture is becoming more common. It's not that it wasn't there, but it's kind of growing in its diversity, right? Like now, more people are able to access that world. Earlier, there were chat rooms and there were other spaces. So, people always have gotten up to mischief. It's not that it's, a, it's suddenly something got invented with the internet, but the internet allows you to multiply it in many ways. And, and now, with the smartphone, it's so much easier to escape scrutiny and to, to experiment with things, right? But alongside it, what also happens is that there isn't much of a context in which you're talking about this. So, very swiftly, one of the things that we saw was that new templates were arising very fast because of the internet. While the internet was opening up spaces of connection, it was also swiftly replicating templates. For example, it became very common to hear that, you know, oh, it's really uncool to fall in love. And of course, it's totally, hooking up is a cool thing to do. So how is that really liberal? Like if everybody is now supposed to hook up and never fall in love or get attached, then that's no different than earlier when you all had to be monogamous because that's what the culture said you had to be, right? So what it was doing is creating also a new kind of shame, because to start with, everybody has shame around sex. Now you've added a second layer of shame by saying that, well, if you don't already act like you know everything about sex and you're so cool, this is somehow going to make you an outcast. So people also pretending to be cool in certain ways, they're also still ignorant. There was all of this happening. And we thought in order to create a conversation about sex that is not templated, it's very important that it be a cultural conversation, that it be located in a kind of entire arc of life. And uh, the most important thing was that it should feel friendly. The other thing that had begun to happen, and I said I'm a 90s girl for a reason, which is that also the birth of the Internet in the home meant a lot of kind of aimless wandering, right? The Internet was a place where... You just went to hang out when you you at night when you didn't have other work that you were supposed to be doing. It was some it was slightly expensive, so it was also a little bit of a guilty pleasure when you had those dial up modems. And uh, there were these strange blogs, and there were just like people doing random arty things on the internet. It was in that sense a very equivalent of a kind of boho space. By the last 10, 12 years, basically with the coming of social media, it got very manicured as well, right? And it's taken away anonymity and made everything very, very into a grid. So like the algorithms have nicely categorized everything, as well as how you design things on the internet. So if you want to break that grid at a design level, what do you do? If you don't have a lot of money and you can't make like some amazing design, which we didn't have. So then it seemed like, oh, the thing to do is to create a handmade feel because a handmade feel is personal. It doesn't feel like a cookie cutter site. It feels like a place which real people have made and has real people's stories. And it's warm and it's friendly and it's diverse because we work with a number of illustrators. We don't have only one style, right? So we work with a lot of different styles. So in a sense, it's a kind of like a polyphonic space visually. We very much wanted that. And that its colors should be dreamy saturated, fun, every mood possible. Most importantly, that it should feel Indian. It shouldn't, again, feel like this very westernized graphic style, but it should combine Indian bodies, Indian notions of romance, and Indian colors as well, when like colors that are popular in Indian art. So that was actually the design thinking of the site to try to break that very modular kind of idea of the internet, but along with it break the very modular idea of Identity, sexuality, personhood, what you can be, what you can't be. And in terms of conversations, I mean, in terms of even the material that we were putting out, uh, especially our early material, you know, we worked with like Lavni, which is a folk form, a courtesan folk form to make music video and consent. So even the kinds of videos we were making were very much using Indian contexts and making them in a pop kind of fashion uh, to communicate something afresh as well, you know, something that you can relate to that feels like it's in your blood. And so it's familiar. Lastly, I think you cannot really talk about pleasure if you are not being pleasurable. I feel like a lot of sexuality education becomes so stentorian. It's it's so lecturesome. And it's all about like teaching you, downloading information to you. But I think that to, to talk about pleasure, you must be pleasurable so that I am entering on an inclusive and a kind of level playing field. When I enter, whether I know about sex or I don't know about sex, the place I enter from is the place of pleasure. There's always something to enjoy on Asian of So you should never feel excluded when you come in. So that was the thinking that went into how the site was designed and how the design has evolved over time as well. so
0: amazing. And you do feel and see all of that uh, when you go onto the site. And I found it really interesting that you talk about social media and the changes that happened in how information was presented from this, like, blogosphere to, yeah, the social media sphere. I just want to get into that a bit more in terms of how you translate, like, the content, the ethos, and Just that sense of, like what you were saying, out of the grid feeling onto social media or
1: other platforms online. You know, I mean, uh, unfortunately, one of the things that I feel that we all need to start doing is to stop using social media and Internet synonymously, which all of us do. Right. Like when we say the Internet, we always mean social media. And for good or for ill, that's a kind of big reality, that the internet has been completely colonized by social media. And hence, privacy is so, so beleaguered. The concept of privacy has become beleaguered. And imagine sexuality and love and desire about our most private selves. So what does that mean, really? In a world where privacy and private time has become completely colonized by social media, and it wants you to keep scrolling and keep sharing and keep telling and keep trending and joining a hashtag and putting up a selfie and like if it isn't on the internet has it happened what does it really mean to have a private life in such a time so i think this is a question that very much informs everything all of us who work on the internet are thinking about but social media is a reality and if you want to reach people you have to exist on it so the question becomes can you have the guts to not fall victim to its trending algorithmic framework Right. It's quite hard because we live in a world, not just now, but always, that rewards large numbers, that rewards convention, that reads success by numbers. Social media really allows you to fool yourself and fool the world into thinking something matters just because the numbers are huge. Now, I don't think something doesn't matter if the numbers are huge. I'm not saying that at all. There is a meaningfulness in that, but is that the only kind of meaning we want? That's the question to ask, right? If you want to make something new, and if you want to talk about that, which is not much talked about so far, sometimes you have to step away from the imperative of the numbers. You have to find a balance to be able to say the things you want to say and not only say the things that will garner a lot of likes and like will viralize your work, so to speak. To reach people, but also not wanting to be constrained by the ideas of reach in social media, Right. I think like one of the ways in which we've we've tried to strike a balance is by doing a lot of engagements on social media that are utterly pointless. We do a lot of engagements with people where we ask people questions, where we also do things that are just for fun. Like it was world bad poetry day yesterday, I think. And so we ask people to write a bad poem In the comments, so to some extent, to try to create a community of fun and pleasure, and not only a very kind of instrumentalist community, so to speak. So I think that's a bit of a struggle on social media, but I think it's a struggle well worth trying. The other thing is to remember that the internet is not the only world; that there's still a large part of the world that is not on the internet, that cannot access the internet, and there's a lot going on there. And I think one of the important things about Agents of Ishq is this idea that we inhabit what we call the digital space, which is physical and digital both. And that a lot of our material is also created by doing workshops on the ground. Our podcasts are created in workshops over three or four day periods, which are creative workshops and people write their own stories and then record them. And these are often in community communities or spaces that are not necessarily visible online. So I think that is kind of an important thing to keep in mind, that you're constantly cross-pollinating the spaces. You're taking what is on the internet into other communities and bringing things from other communities into the internet. And so... Widening both the worlds in a certain way. And I think that does give a certain richness, you know, it allows you to always learn something new and uh, also have new collaborations, so to speak.
0: Let's take a short break. Join the Global Digital Futures community. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at global underscore futures. Let's keep the conversation going. Yeah, this is. I mean, you covered so many um, key points. I mean, we're sort of a new and young organization, and trying to build community on social mm. media, it is very challenging, and doesn't really feel like it really sticks. You know, definitely that digital aspect of it I think is really really important for really cementing the community and the efforts as well you know actually doing something about what you're saying online you know so one thing that another thing I should say that I really like about your approach is how you speak about sort of not always being in position against like patriarchy or sort of you know always Talking about that, rather generating, like you said, spaces of pleasure, of engagement, creating what you want to see in different spaces, right? But the feminist community and feminist community build building online is mired with challenges. Have you had any challenges in terms of expressing the things that you express online or building the feminist communities that you express online? Are there any pushbacks? Uh, I mean, I
1: think on the whole. We've not faced the kind of trolling and pushback that people are used to facing when they talk about these things. And I think like, there would have been the odd occasion, but I would say, considering what happens on the Internet, it's totally unremarkable. It's been so limited. But I think it is very important to consider why that's not happening. And I do think that one of the reasons, it, you know, many people get trolled because they speak their mind, especially if they're individuals. They get massively trolled women and queer people especially right and people of bahujan castes as well in india there's a kind of pushback from those who have privilege I think like with Agents of Ish, because it is not a project that is posited against something, its entire stance is not one that is, you know, infused with that colonial humanitarian upliftment politics that I'm going to now tell you what's good for you, because, you know, you're completely backwards. So we've got no born again imperative going on, right? For us, the approach that we take is people are the experts on their own lives. And that's it. For example, what we don't have on Agents of Ish is cultural criticism by anybody. I mean, we don't do cultural criticism and we don't really accept pieces on cultural criticism, which is the mainstay of many, many projects online, right? Like now I'm going to tell you about toxic masculinity, or now I'm going to tell you how problematic everything is. And I'm just like, well, ladies, if you wanted to grow up to be scolding aunties, welcome. But that's not my idea of power, it's not my idea of excellence. Joy, beauty, nothing. Talking about your life and what you've learned from your life, that is a sharing of a wisdom that you have genuinely acquired from within you, right? So I think that the idea that people are the experts on their own lives and what they have learned from their lives is something that is useful to communities. This is a kind of what is called asset framing, looking at people in terms of what they have and not in terms of what they lack. Look looking at them not as needy victims and you as their saviors, but rather as to as people joined in an enterprise that will be mutually freeing at some level. Right? So the idea that people write in their narratives and send them to us, but we don't treat the narratives like clickbait, but rather we work with them to ensure that the narrative becomes lucid, becomes understandable to others, that the wisdom that they have gained through their own lives is readable in the narrative and we have it beautifully illustrated we have it translated into Hindi so we treat their story with love that's that's the value we are bringing to it people are bringing in their own stories and we are adding to it with our creative abilities so that when it is presented to the community there is the Quality of like a like a mulled wine quality to it, right? Like something that has been mellowed and understood, and actually, it leads to more people contributing their stories because it is exactly that community building through sharing your lived wisdom, right? So, I think that there is an entire cohort of people who think that expressing feminism is always about critiquing the patriarchy, and that's certainly one part of feminism, but it's only the starting point of feminism. It is not the ending point of feminism, at least not for me personally, and I think. I have any number of comrades who are like that, so it's not that I'm unique in thinking this. But personally, I think I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about the things I don't believe in. I would like to spend time talking about the things I do believe in, right? I think that that's a fundamental political difference which is deeply rooted in the idea of pleasure. Because if you think that all the time you're going to be censorious, then isn't that a kind of politics of tabooing? Whereas if you are in the politics of pleasure, you will celebrate the ideas that you love and you will build things out of the ideas you love. And maybe that won't be a gigantic world. Maybe we won't have millions of followers, but it will be a a rich garden, you know, which many people would like to inhabit. And then many people might grow it and maybe it will reach a certain growth and no more. We don't know. But as a feminist journey, we definitely want to be able to speak in more feminist terms and less in patriarchal terms. I think that's very important. So I think that when the moment that you start speaking in patriarchal terms, right, you're in the binary. No? Either it's like, I'm going to oppose you. I'm for something by being against something. I don't feel that's the only way that expression has to happen, at least for all sexual expression. And here is another thing. You may deeply disagree with somebody's politics. But they might yet contribute a narrative that is deeply moving and actually generative for the community. You can have an approach that's very purist and say, how can you possibly have the narrative of a person whose politics you disagree with out there? As long as the narrative doesn't promote misogyny, casteism, violence, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, if the narrative is genuinely a shared experience that a person is being reflective about, it's got a place on Agents of ish. And I think, isn't it amazing that there can be a place of inclusion where those of us who otherwise on social media find ourselves unable to find a meeting point can actually contemplate that there's some place that we can go in and be in the same place without being the same. Right. So the imperative of social media that we should all be in the army is very different from the imperative of feminism, which is that we should all be able to craft a path in the world that is true for us, that is creating more space for others. And not for ourselves alone. And that we are co-creating something new together. It's continuously evolving. There are always new questions. The goal is not fixed. The goal can change. You can make mistakes. You will learn from those mistakes. And you will be always open to these questions, right? So I think that's the kind of uh, approach we take. The second thing is that I think like we are quite humorous and funny. And uh, that our language is a language of deep affection. We made a film called Me and My Body for adolescence when we started out and it tracked the journey of the body from chromosome to pheromone and when we were making it we were talking amongst ourselves that at the end of this film 10 minutes of viewing you should feel like hugging yourself you should love your body in a way not in that body positivity like that very tinny body positivity narrative online which is that you know everybody's beautiful the thing is it's not about everybody being beautiful body positivity is about everybody having a positive relationship with their bodies. Beauty is not the only positive relationship you can have. You can have a relationship of affection, acceptance, health, curiosity. You know, there are so many relationships you can have with your body. Why should beauty be the only, only thing that makes a body positive after all? So I think like there's so many conversations to have, which are about us becoming whole adults and We are going to keep on becoming adults through our lives in a way. So that's kind of the journey. And I think, therefore, it is not an uh, excluding or confrontational or an aggressive language. So I think it automatically doesn't attract too many trolls. And maybe they come in to write a bad poem or two and they have a little fun and they forget trolling. Like, you know, if a troll can come into Agents of Wish and realize there are other ways of feeling good than hating on somebody, who knows? Who knows what that could change for the troll?
0: For sure, for sure. You speak, you mentioned like inclusion a lot and it just got me wondering if you know who exactly your community are or like where they might be found, what language they speak, I don't know.
1: So when Agents of Fish started, you know, it was primarily metropolitan audience and it was mostly English speaking, although there were some people for whom English wasn't the first language. As time has gone by, we are now going to be six years old in December. There's, I think that the audience has diversified a lot. We have that very unusual thing of having, I think like an 85% women and 15% men in our audience, which is kind of like considering that only 22% of women on the internet in India was really remarkable. But now we are about 60, 40, sometimes 50, 50 men and women. So our biggest audience used to be in the 24 to 32 age group when we started, but it is now in the 18 to 24 age group. So there's also a shift, it's diversifying in age. We have a lot more people who are uh, now Hindi speaking or for whom English is not at all a first language or a comfortable language. We have more people from small towns than before. Though still, I would say the chunk of our audience is from cities, but there are more and more people from smaller towns that are coming in. At the beginning, there are many other ways by which we gauge our audience. For example, all our material is free to use. Many organizations are using it in their work. So it's also reaching communities on the ground who don't have that much internet access in other ways. And that we've always had feedback on right from the beginning. So we don't consider our audience only those who access us online, but also these audiences offline. I think uh, initially, the other, other way of gauging who is our audience is how many the kinds of people who contribute their narratives. So earlier, our narratives came primarily from women and gay men. And now uh, the narratives have begun to diversify, more queer women, more bisexual people, a few trans narratives, not a lot yet. But now I think like the gender identities are also diversifying and the sexualities are diversifying. Uh, Sometimes I feel like you have to do something to um, propel that conversation. For example, we knew for a long time that queer women were not writing in and we didn't understand why that was. And you see that generally in the LGBTQ representation that, you know, You see the voices of gay men, especially cis gay men, more prominently. You see them represented more prominently. And that reflects social kind of ideas of men's voices in general being more represented. And uh, where trans people are concerned, the only visibility often tends to be within, you know, legal movements. But very little on the basis of experiential accounts and everyday life, in a sense. So, I, I mean, we did a month, the year before last, I think, for Pride Month. We did a special month, which was L for Lesbian. And it was, a, well, it wasn't L for Lesbian. Sorry, I'm wrong. It was called When Women Love Women. But we looked at a lot of experiences of lesbian women, of bisexual women. Women who were involved with women in different ways. We had this kind of letter exchange between an older lesbian and a younger lesbian, talking about their lives to each other, which was a very beautiful and popular piece that we did. We did a history of the L word. We, we created a map. A queer map of Bombay, which was a kind of map of time and space, both of organizing, of meeting points and all of those things. So I think in a sense, we we interviewed a couple of lesbian writers like Suniti Joshi, who is a fantastic, fantastic writer. So I think that also opens up a conversation sometimes and you start getting more submissions of pieces when you do that. So sometimes we feel that we're not really getting any, we don't solicit personal accounts as such. So there are other ways that you want to try to elicit those accounts if they come to you. So, I mean, that diversification, sometimes you have to try to make it happen because you can't only keep waiting for it to happen. When people are not used to their stories being represented, they may often hesitate to contribute a story, right? But I think like the other interesting thing note is that straight men almost never contribute narratives. It's very, very difficult for them to talk about these issues. And I consider it something of a success of Agents of Ish that we've now slowly begun to get narratives from straight men. We didn't really encourage it in the beginning, but we wanted to create a space, the center of which are women and queer people. The way that sexuality is discussed in the world, straight, cis men are the center of that world. And then everybody else is supposedly on the margins. But we wanted to flip that, right? So the center of our universe at Agents of Ish is women and queer people. And then it creates a new terms of discourse. So when straight men start, straight men find it difficult to enter a world which is not on their terms, which is argument, binaries, let me tell you what to think, this is not the way things should be, et cetera, et cetera. Where you have to just do experiential sharing, they are very, very nervous to do it. So now that we've slowly started getting a few narratives from straight men, we consider it a success of Agents of Wish, that we could create that alternative space which also welcomes men on different terms. It's not exclusionary to men, but it's definitely not up for being reframed into the traditional normative space that men have been used to commanding. I mean, if they want to enter, they must enter as equals with everybody.
0: Really, really interesting. I really liked what you said, especially about sort of encouraging different narratives as well and finding ways to do that and also how the narratives that are shared are quite representative of people's position to their sexuality like as you were saying about um straight men i just want to talk a bit about like the feminist internet as an idea you know and its principles we saw you on a talk about the feminist internet at making technology gender inclusive forum last year Could you speak a little bit more about how the principles of the feminist internet are looking in India at the moment and Mm -hmm. how they might be threatened, maybe by some laws and policies like the new IT laws, for example?
1: I'm not very knowledgeable about the IT laws, but I think that definitely the new kinds of laws which threaten privacy are very difficult for women. Like if you want a feminist internet, they're difficult for women, trans people, queer people. They endanger them because of the laws that take away their privacy. I mean, it's already social media is so threatening to all of these privacies, right? But the law makes it more difficult. I think like one of the things that activists in India have been talking about for a long time is how little the rules of the principle of consent informs what happens on the internet. So, for example, many, many cases where, you know, of doxing or where women's nudes have been leaked, et cetera, if at all all they are prosecuted, it is under laws of obscenity and not under laws that violate consent. So I think there is also these questions of consent which really need to enter the landscape for the internet to be more feminist. There are also simple principles of access, that very few women in India have digital access and that sometimes... In a family, that is also to do with class, right? So sometimes if there is a poor family and there's only one phone between all of them, the chances of the women in the house having access to that phone go down that much more. So I think that these are many, many barriers to a feminist internet that exist in India. And uh, I think that a feminist internet, obviously, it has to be an intersectional internet. And when we say intersectional, not just as a catchphrase, or a buzzword but really is it representing diverse voices are those voices kind of commonly prominent in the internet space how does one make that happen how does one ensure it happens how does one uh, protect people from trolling because of their identities these are questions that remain unaddressed i think and need to be addressed
0: let's keep the conversation going Send your comments, questions, and feedback on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at global underscore futures or email hello at globaldigitalfutures.com. We might just give you a shout out on the next episode. Yeah, when you speak about intersectionality, it brings to mind your film Morality TV and Loving Jihad. Just mm-hmm. you know, that is such a representation of the intersectionality of women and in, in that case of Muslim women. Yeah, as you were saying, these narratives are fueled through media. They're definitely fueled online as well.
1: I think one of the things that it's difficult to fight is that, you know, when we speak about intersectionality, are we the internet might allow some amount of representation on the basis of identity limited but maybe it allows it so there are many identities that may eventually get representation on the internet but I think intersectionality is really about acknowledging that everybody is an intersection of many identities right it's not simply making more and more rooms but it's also about questioning the entire structure which doesn't just include people who are acceptable in their identity. So to give you an analogy, you know, the idea of community standards, which rules social media, and where so many things are disallowed because they don't meet community standards. If you are putting up a post and you want to promote it on Instagram or Facebook, it can get refused because posts about sexual education are allowed, but not if they promote sexual pleasure. So if you speak about pleasure, the post is not going to get promoted, for example, right? So I think that there are many things about the entire context which is acceptable into which people are fitted in the name of intersectionality and many people who get left out. This is especially true when it comes to like, you know, terms like what is pornographic and what is not pornographic? Whom will you leave out? What kind of sexual expression will you allow? And which will you not allow? Uh, Which kind of bodies do you find acceptable? And which kind of bodies do you not find acceptable? It is important to remember that the internet is primarily created by white men. So so many of their facial recognition technologies, their algorithms are inherently racist and sexist. So that needs to be actually thought about. How intersectional can we be in a framework of this kind, right? And how can we change that framework? That becomes an important question. Similarly, when it comes to, say, queer identities, will you allow certain representations of queerness which feel palatable to you, but not representations of queerness, which destabilize categories. You know, there's a lot of that that's, that's present in the offline world and is present in the online world as well. The online world, which supposedly should allow a maximal freedom of expression. In fact, very much mimics the physical world in what it allows and doesn't allow. And maybe in the physical world, because you're not online, there are a few more spaces. And I think some kinds of things like, you know, in India, there was TikTok, which now doesn't exist, it's banned in India. But TikTok reveals to you that there is an entire universe of working class people and rural people who are actually living rather diverse lives, which don't at all fit into this imperial binary of we will uplift the rural poor and we are so progressive in the cities and so on, right? But now with that being banned, what you have, you have excessively sanitized Instagram reads, which are subject to these community standards, right? So, and I just feel like, and there's so much copyright, like they will remove things because of copyright. There are so many, like the rule of corporates on the internet and how they would like us to be same is very similar to colonization and anthropology, which would like us all to be same. So actually colonization bleeds into anthropology and capitalism and they become nicely gridded on the internet, right?
0: No, as soon as you also mentioned TikTok, I was just thinking, I was already thinking about the colonial and capitalist underscoring of, you know, these white Western male platforms and TikTok mm-hmm. from China. As soon as you said TikTok, I was like, actually, like, yeah, we're still sort of using something from the West when maybe there's other opportunities and different platforms mm-hmm. that we're actually blocking from, you know, from the global south. I don't know. It's more complicated than that, but it just it struck me. Yeah.
1: But it was for India, right? Because one of the reasons why TikTok became so big in other parts of the country was because it came on those Chinese feature phones, the cheap phones that people bought. And then it allowed them to instantly do whatever it is they were doing and have publics following them. So they created these new publics in a sense, right? And they changed around many languages, I think. And there was a way in which working class people were talking about their lives, talking about their issues, talking about their rights. And there was a lot of queer expression, a lot on TikTok, in ways that you don't see on Instagram. See, Instagram's very manicured, right? There's an element of class uh, that goes into who's on Instagram. And that's also true with aesthetic. We started speaking about the aesthetic framework of Agents of Age, which deliberately stays away from this kind of westernized, gridded, graphical treatment, right? And what you see is that Instagram and many of the, what can I say, American platforms, American originating platforms, they also can sometimes be discouraging aesthetically to people from other kinds of backgrounds. So TikTok wasn't like that, right? TikTok didn't constrain you in quite the same way. TikTok wasn't so uh, language-driven. Instagram may be about photographs, but it's very language-driven, and that language happens to be English, right? So I think that there are all of these things that come into play That TikTok represents and the fact that it's banned in India is it lends itself to a lot of complicated readings.
0: We've covered like so much, it's been such a rich and insightful conversation. I'm gonna pose maybe a challenging question to close, just because also it's very interesting how you charted like starting the platform in the sort of blogosphere space, then social media, like there's emergence of different internet cultures since you started as well. Do you feel like the internet is living up to its promise or even for creating decolonial narratives? You talked about how even with gender and sexuality, a lot of things were wiped out with colonialism. Is there space on the, on the internet? Do you think that there's promise that we can truly create decolonial spaces?
1: Well, I think, you know, it's so tempting because of the terrible things that happen online to say that the internet has now become a dark place of trolling and repression. But I do, I, I'm always uncomfortable with that kind of moralistic reading of something because just because you're having a bad experience on the internet doesn't mean everybody's having a bad experience on the internet. And I think that, For a large number of people, it's a place where they can articulate themselves in a way that they wouldn't be able to do elsewhere. It is still a place where voices that can't be heard in the mainstream have a chance of being heard. Uh, It's a place to make connections which you might otherwise not be able to make. So the internet has not failed its promise, let's say, but it has not yet fulfilled all of its promise because it is so deeply taken over by capitalist imperatives. So really, what is the question of conversation about the internet that we want to be having about a free internet relatively? And I think that conversation often gets derailed because, in fact, I think the interesting thing is that sometimes gender is a technique for not talking about other things for certain people, right? So they'll pretend to care about women, and they'll put in more, more features that will let women block others or protect themselves from trolling. But then entire issues of race, class, caste will get be left unaddressed. And entire questions of actually a free internet will be unaddressed. So should the internet be mostly social media? That is a question that you know one has to ask. Of course, the internet is also apps. It's many other things. So how can we raise a conversation about internets, many internets, just as we do in many other respects. How can we talk about the internet as a resource for people that people can also have control over, that there can be some publicly owned bits of internet? I think like those are conversations about the internet as a resource that aren't being had enough and should be had more. If you're a person with a disability, you're not going to say that the internet has not fulfilled some promise. The internet for people with disability has meant so many things, access to so much that they couldn't access in a physical world. So I think like we shouldn't forget that the internet and social media are not synonymous, that capitalist ownership of the internet and the internet are not one and the same thing. And that another imagination of the internet has to be, really there's a lot of work to be done in propelling that other imagination of the internet.
0: Yeah, that's really fantastic what you're saying. And I'm, I'm a software engineer, like a, a junior one, but I always do think that for community building, it would be great when people have access to the skills and and you know the different platforms are more accessible that people can create their own forums you know instead of having to have a facebook page or having to have an instagram literally create your own chat room or whatever you better you know
1: yeah
0: which you actually see more on like the dark web or with sort of like right-wing politics they just create you know, these platforms mm. that are closed and only accessible to them, right?
1: Mm. Well, I mean, I, a new generation will come, right? Like, it's not like only the same imagination of the internet will not rule the internet and things will change because if you create a space and you prevent people from inhabiting it fully, they will surely try to find a way where they, which they can inhabit a space, right? So we await excitedly to see what comes
0: fantastic thank you so much parameter it's such a pleasure speaking with you we're saying you're like the coolest person that we've had everyone <laughs> has been interesting but like you're really really cool thank <laughs> so thank you so much and um yeah we'll keep watching what you're doing and yeah it's very i'll
1: look out for the podcast too yeah
0: <laughs> right. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode with Paramita Vohra, founder of Agents of Ishq. Discover more about the platform on their website, www.agentsofishq.com. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe and follow. Also, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It will really help with our ranking. And if you enjoyed the episode, please share the podcast with your friends. You can find us online at www.globaldigitalfutures.com and on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at global underscore futures.